Welcome to the second season of Reset the Table. Russia's war in Ukraine affects agricultural markets and threatens food security for millions around the world. The UN Food System Summit is behind us, and COP27 and the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health are upon us. Join us as we examine solutions to food insecurity challenges around the world and right here at home. Today's Reset the Table episode features a guest host, CSIS non-resident senior advisor Julie Howard. This episode was recorded before Russia invaded Ukraine, so our guests do not address the many impacts of this war on global food security and nutrition. Hello, my name is Julie Howard. I'm a senior advisor with CSIS's Global Food Security Program, and I'm also a board member at the World Vegetable Center. And so it's my special pleasure today to host the podcast with Dr. Gabrielle Rugalema, who is the Regional Director for Eastern and Southern Africa at the World Vegetable Center, or as we refer to it, World Veg. Dr. Rugalema joined the center in 2019 after almost 30 years of experience leading and managing agriculture and food security programs. Prior to joining World Veg, he was the representative and country director for FAO in Kenya, where he managed a large portfolio of country and regional programs. He's also served with FAO in a number of other countries and at FAO headquarters in Rome. And he's also held many other positions with other UN agencies. Dr. Rugalema holds a PhD in development studies from the Institute of Social Studies in The Hague, Netherlands. And Gabriel, if I may call you Gabriel, welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to start off today's conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about what is the World Vegetable Center exactly? Can you give us a brief overview? When was World Veg established? What's its mission? Where does World Veg work around the world? And on a personal note, what led you to come to World Bench? Why were you interested in joining World Bench and to coming home to Tanzania? Thank you, Julie, for having me today. And it's a very interesting question that we started with. Yeah, the World Vegetable Center was established in 1971 by Asian countries with the support of actually the U.S. government and the Asian Development Bank. Why was it established? It was established because the Asian countries had gone through Green Revolution in the 1950s and most important in 1960s. So by the end of the 1960s, they were already well aware that they had high-yielding rice varieties and high-yielding wheat varieties, particularly for Pakistan and some parts of India. So they were going to be food secure. But then they discovered that food security doesn't come from starchy foods alone. They needed something else. They needed food sources that would bring micronutrients and proteins that are really required for vitality. So they founded the World Vegetable Center. They deported it in Taiwan. And remember, in 1971, Taiwan was still a member of the United Nations. And so since then, the World Vegetable Center has expanded. The mandate still remains the same and valid today. One, lead the research and the development and promotion of vegetable crops, initially in Asia, but now throughout the world. And that's why we are called the World Vegetable Center. 
I think wherever you are, when you eat a vegetable crop, you really eat something of the World Vegetable Center because nearly all the varieties are going around the world, their germplasm is either found or was generated by the World Vegetable Center. So why did I join the World Vegetable Center? That's an interesting question. I joined the World Vegetable Center after spending many years in the UN system where often my work was at a strategic level, diplomatic level. So at some point in my career, I really wanted to work on the ground where I could see that my efforts were contributing to real-life changes. And I was really impressed by the work that the World Veg does, particularly at community level and particularly at the conservation of genetic materials. Second, having spent nearly 20 years in the food security space, I was already aware that much of the investment was going into field crops, particularly the grains and legumes, and that vegetables, although actually they are important to our lives and livelihoods, they were a bit neglected. So I said, here is a space where I can take my intellectual energy, my physical energy, and my charisma to try and first do good advocacy, second, show physically that actually investing in vegetables makes sense yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You know, I always tell people, nobody ever got sick with a nutritional problem and was told to eat more meat. We are told to eat more vegetables. <laughs> so vegetables matter in our lives, and really they should be given the priority they deserve. So World Vegetable Center has been around now for 50 years. One of the key points, Gabriel, that came out of the 2021 UN Food System Summit was the importance of focusing not only on increasing agricultural production, but the Food System Summit also talked about the importance of improving nutrition and the healthfulness of our diets. It really put a focus on diets. And scientists are actually telling us now that poor diets are now the leading contributor to the global burden of disease. Countries where there's a high consumption of fruits and vegetables and nuts and healthy oils have a relatively low number of diet-related deaths. But countries where we have a lot of refined starch carbohydrate consumption, like bread mm -hmm. and refined grain and highly processed foods, are seeing an increase in these diet-related deaths. So what a paradox, right? I saw a research finding from World Veg last year that the combined international public research budget for the main staple crops, maize, wheat, rice, and starchy tubers, is 30 times higher than for vegetables. I wanted to see if you might provide us some context from an East and Southern Africa perspective. So tell us a little bit about the normal diet in Tanzania and in the region. And what do you think have been the key factors in your region that have resulted in such low investments in vegetables, fruits, and legumes? You grew up in Tanzania. Have diets always centered on maize or rice, etc.? Or have you seen a change yourself? Do you remember a time when diets were more diverse? And if so, what drove that change in diet? Thank you. Quite a bit of a question, but we'll try and digest it. 
you are right that so much investment, massive, massive investment in the last 60 years have really gone to fill the crops, the rice, maize. Probably those two could even easily take 50 or more than 50% of the investment. And vegetables are just farther, farther down the pyramid as if they don't exist. If you look at the diets in the world, and particularly in Africa and in Tanzania here, you see, of course, over the years, you see changes. When I was born, I grew up, of course, in the 70s. Everything we ate was really very diverse. I was born in a place that grows and eats bananas all the time, the East African Highland bananas. So you would have your bananas and beans and meat or fish, but as well as milk and vegetables. And if your grandmother or your mother was going to make you eat something, it was always going to be vegetables. And they would find ways to, to make it palatable for a child. Sometimes it's mixed with milk, sometimes with ghee, sometimes with coconut sauce or peanut sauce. But I could say uh, we are growing up uh, healthy. Of course, um, it depends on the family you came from. But generally, there was a lot more to eat. There wasn't a monotony of diet. I ate ugali first, this maize meal, when I went to second school at the age of 14. And I remember I nearly starved because in the first two weeks, I refused to eat the meal because it was simply too monotonous. It's maize meal and the beans in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. So I cried, I tried to go home, and my dad said, that's your life, you have to survive. <laughs> Eventually I survived it. But then if you look at the entire Africa, even uh, before uh, the colonial days, maize wasn't there. Maize is a new introduction. Maize came with explorers and colonialism. And so a normal African household, wherever it was, it would eat millet, it would eat sorghum, it would eat vegetables. Milk was an important part of the diet and uh, a few other things. So it was diverse. The more I think we advanced towards the late 60s, the early 70s, then you see increased urbanization. You see where maize becomes the panacea to prevent high mass starvation. And so there was a push of maize as a cure for starvation. And slowly in the people's diet, particularly in urban areas, it started really replacing the diverse diet that were there. But also maize is convenient to cook. You just boil water, you put your flour and cha-cha-cha, you have a meal in 30 minutes while people are becoming busier. So diets are changing to reflect the urbanization and convenience that is needed by people because they think that they have run short of time. And so I think maize will remain part of the diet for quite some time, but we shouldn't probably blame maize. There are things you can do to improve the maize diet. A bit of maize, a bit of maize meal, a bit of legumes like beans, a bit of meat, and a bit of vegetables, and then fruit makes a complete meal. I think there are a few things that I want to mention there. One is that the awareness on nutrition, particularly the power of vegetables in nutrition, is still not there. And it is underrated both by the consumers and the governments. 
Two, perception. Vegetables are still perceived as women's crops, as well as food to be eaten by women or poor families. If you are rich, your richness can only be explained and seen in your diet of ugali, that's maize meal, and beef every day or chicken every day. And then, of course, there hasn't really been big, big investment in nutrition, particularly in childhood nutrition. I always tell people, when I went to school, my mom would wake up in the morning and early in the morning at four, wake me up. We had to light the fire using firewood and then get a warm meal and put it in that steel container and I would take it to school like this. So at meal times we would sit, talk as kids, even share meals to see whose mother is a better cook <laughs> These days that is gone. In the school where I went to school, in my village, are still in the same place. So kids are still walking three kilometers to school and three kilometers back on an empty tummy. The government here and in other places have established school feeding programs. Their qualities differ. But I mean, here in Tanzania, the government puts aside 1,000 shillings per kid per year. It's less than 50 cents per year. And now I wonder what kind of kid can survive on 50 cents per year. Where will the rest of the investment come from? Is it parents? Is it community? Is it what? But I mean, if you look around, you see that they could even say 1,000 shillings per child per day, and we could still afford it. So those are the, some of the challenges that we are passing through. I'm happy that there is some progress, but it will still take time. Thank you. You know, thanks also for bringing up the notion that women's labor, you know, I'm thinking of your mom getting up at, you know, the crack of dawn mm -hmm. to be sure you had a diverse meal to take with you to school. And everybody's mom used to do that. Mm -hmm. And so the incredible burden on women and as you say, sort of the increasing urbanization, the need for convenience food, the fact that, you know, it's snack foods and, you know, quick maize meal are much less labor intensive, right? Than cooking a four or five course nutrition meal. So that's one of the challenges that we face. So thank you for that. You know, one of the recurring themes that came up at the 2021 UN Food System Summit was the relative expense of a healthy, nutritious diet. And even more so because, as you were mentioning, I mean, governments have really prioritized maize and rice globally, right? In many cases, subsidies that were government investments really geared towards improving and increasing the production of those crops and not to what are viewed as minor fruits and vegetables. Anyway, a healthy, nutritious diet full of fruits, vegetables, legumes is relatively expensive. And so the estimates are that some 3 billion people in the world today cannot afford even the cheapest kinds of healthy diets. And so I wondered if you could sort of bring us back to the work that World Veg is doing to try and bring down what makes the vegetables expensive and what kind of research is World Veg undertaking, especially on station, to drive down the cost? Thank you. You are right, Julie. Vegetables can be hard to find because of the following reasons. In most African countries, vegetable seed system is very weak or even, I can say, unavailable in the sense that to find vegetable seeds enough for everyone to grow is a nightmare. That's one. 
So since the vegetable seeds are few uh, and far between in terms of uh, varieties and availability, then they become expensive because the demand is higher than the supply. Three, there is a huge tendency for Africa to depend on imported or exotic vegetables, lettuce, cabbage, Chinese cabbage, carrots, and the other crops. And then, of course, vegetables are planted in small plots, probably along riverine places in, in, in a huge country like Tanzania or DRC or even Kenya. You don't always have the infrastructure and the logistics to bring surplus vegetables to the consumers in towns. And so I think finally, the main producers of vegetables up till now actually have been women who are busy, as we have already um, said, they are busy with the household chores and their lives. So naturally, the production isn't uh, big and is not commercially oriented. So if you look at those overarching problems in the research of World Vegetable Center, we are trying to contribute to the availability and the cheapness of vegetables in the following ways. One, we are the custodian of the biggest gene bank, publicly owned and managed gene bank. And in this gene bank, we put seeds or vegetables, particularly African traditional vegetables, in the case of here in Arusha, in Taiwan is more Asian vegetables, to ensure that, one, farmers can get access to seeds, uh, to improve the seeds of African traditional vegetables that can grow nearly all over the place, whether it's in dry land or in wetland or in humid tropics. What are traditional vegetables? Can you name a few of them? Yes, that's a, a good one. In the World Vegetable Center, we differentiate between two groups of vegetables. One group is what we call global vegetables. These are vegetables like tomatoes, carrots, uh, cabbages, which are cultivated all over the world and have a global value chain. And then we have African traditional vegetables, others call them indigenous vegetables. And these are vegetables that are grown locally, consumed locally. The second one is we are the leader in vegetable breeding in the world, but as a public institution, but particularly in this part of Africa. So we have a huge breeding program, and again, it focuses on both types of vegetables and it concentrates more on traditional African vegetables. So there are vegetables that we have bred recently and which are becoming big in the market. That includes African amaranth, African eggplant, nightshade, and the other leafy vegetables. And I'm really very happy to tell you that I saw a few days ago that UNESCO has put some of these vegetables in the list of superfoods globally, as well as protected foods. So I hope that one day they will hit the international market in a big way. And so that's number two. So improvement of the germplasm and the release of new seeds. And the third work that we do here is really to make sure that the knowledge we have accumulated over the last 50 years is taken to the field to the communities, to train the people, give them the knowledge, the skills, and the confidence to produce vegetables 
consume vegetables and make vegetables the line of business. That's great. So let me dig down a little bit on that theme. You talked to us a little bit about the on-station research work that World Veg mm-hmm. is doing to increase the access and availability of vegetables of all kinds, but also traditional African vegetables. Also, so breeding to increase yields, to increase mm-hmm. insect and disease resistance, all of those things. So I want to ask you a little bit about the off-station activities, yeah. research activities mm-hmm. that World Veg is undertaking. And in particular, I've been really pleased to see World Veg increasing its work with youth and sort of business opportunities around vegetables, vegetables as a business proposition. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. First, why does World Veg think it's so important to focus on creating business opportunities for African women? You just mentioned that, uh, but also African youth. And then if you could tell us a little bit about the main projects that World Veg has in this area that are centered on youth and the creation of business opportunities in vegetable business hubs. It's good you are asking that question because it's one of the exciting streams of work here. I'm fully committed to that. If you look at the vegetable value chain, you see women as producers Women, not as transporters, but sometimes as aggregators, but mostly women as retailers of the vegetables. So they are already there. And what World Veg is doing is really to consolidate their position, help consolidate their position, but also make sure that they are strong in the value chain. And when we look at the employment space, you see that only the agriculture sector has the opportunities along the value chain and the multiplier effects to employ a significant amount of youth. You know, the common perception is that youth are not interested in agriculture, that it's too much work. They look at their mothers, their fathers, their grandfathers, you know, who have been working with hand hose and said that Mm. that life is not for me. So why do you think, you know, even if there are employment opportunities, uh, why do you think youth would be interested in vegetable production? So let me first of all say how we are bringing women and youth into the vegetable agribusiness. One of the projects is going on in Kenya at the moment. A few years ago, we teamed together with the CRS, formerly known as Catholic Relief Services, a U.S.-based large NGO, and we established a youth hub here where we took young people, brought them here, trained them on agriculture, gave them the mentoring that they needed, connected them to off-takers and input suppliers, and then after one year they were ready, they went back. Some established good businesses, some went into seed farming, and some went into fresh vegetable production. That gave us the knowledge and the confidence that the young people are not averse to agriculture. What they need is one, to know whether actually agriculture will amount to employment. Remember, as you said, they grew up in households where farming is just a regular thing that you do, There is no commercial trait or connotation, and you do it to survive, you know? But they want more. They want to see agriculture as an employer, and agriculture not only in farming, but as input suppliers, as aggregators, as financial suppliers, as marketers. 
So we started actually explaining and showing them that agriculture is much more than tilling the land. Then they became interested in that agriculture can actually make you money. Then they became interested. And so in Kenya, we have a large project, Kenya and Ethiopia, a large project funded by the IKEA Foundation, IKEA of Sweden. They have a very, very good and sensitive foundation that seeks, first of all, to make a difference in the lives of women and youth and to care for the planet. So we sat down, crafted a project. We decided that the focus will be on vegetable business networks for youth and for women. And what does a vegetable business network do is, of course, you identify youth and women who are interested in vegetable agribusiness. That's one. Two, you, of course, select and train them, give them the training skills they need. So we take them through the paces in terms of what they need to do and what they need to know. Then we organize them in groups. Because when you have a producer group, it's easier for an off-taker to come and collect large volumes from one place rather than visiting each hut and each household trying to collect the vegetables. And then, of course, we link them to the input markets. That means financial resources. We bring banks and the credit unions and the others input suppliers and their other service providers, as well as link them to the off-takers. In Kenya, in Ethiopia, we are talking to supermarkets. We are talking to the normal African markets that you know. So we are talking to such people, linking them to the village vegetable business networks, and then making sure that there is business taking place. And what we have found, that of course women are still encumbered by the social issues of taking care of the family. So plots will be small. Productivity is increasing, but not as much. But the young people are the most, most excited. They are the ones asking questions. They are the ones driving the agenda. So the argument that young people don't want to be involved in agriculture, I think is probably the idea from the past. They are getting to learn that it's really very, very important to go into agriculture because it has many, many opportunities other than any other sector. I can also give you an example of what then we are doing here at Arusha, where we have now a group of 20 young people we have decided to give them employability skills program called Tayari Kwajira, which means ready for employment. But it's not employment in an office. Employment in terms of get employment if you like it, but create your own employment and employ others. So we are focusing on three main pillars. Pillar one is a practical training where they are given enterprises to manage from planting all the way to selling. That's one. Two, we are giving them masterclass 
on leadership and governance. How do you manage yourself? How do you lead others? How do you lead your business? How do you write a business plan? How do you communicate? How do you pitch your investment opportunity and stuff like that? And then we are giving them practical exposure in terms of taking them to large and small entrepreneurs and other enterprises to see how things happen practically. So they will stay here for one solid year. The government has liked the program so much so that, one, they are supporting half of the group with um, some small but significant scholarship. Two, they have decided now to establish a national-wide program called Growing a Better Tomorrow. And it will focus on agriculture and it will be modeled on our program. So I think the future is bright. Yeah. Yeah. No, congratulations on that. So in the Global Food Security Program, we're especially interested in the U.S., the role that U.S. assistance plays. So, of course, we're proud that U.S. funding helped to establish World Vegetable Center. And then, you know, hearing your comments in some way, I think that World Veg's burgeoning work on youth right now had its roots, perhaps, you know, in some of the early work that was done at your center in Arusha with CRS and on station, sort of looking at some of the dimensions of youth and youth business hubs. So that work started there and now it's really, really taken off in, in a number of forms, yeah, both in your region, but also in West Africa. So that's great to see and especially great to see that the government of Tanzania is taking up that model and making it a national model. Let me first start with and re-emphasize the role of the U.S. in this. Credits to the U.S. government and the people there, because I think they have had this vision over the years. The resources that the U.S. has put into the World Vegetable Center has made the institution to survive and do its work until now. And as I said, yeah, some of the innovations that are coming to fruition now were started long time ago with some seed funding from the U.S. We will continue needing the U.S. And surely here in Africa, there are opportunities to contribute to poverty alleviation, to making youth get the employment they desire, and to make Africa produce nutritious and safe foods, including vegetables, that we can export to the U.S. and the rest of the world, but also keep our population well-nourished. And we know that some of the nutrition problems, the diet problems that we have nowadays are this issue of fast food convenience, you know, one quick It's not only about cost, it's also a behavioral issue. So I wonder, you know, when you've been working with youth, do you see them as being able to play a role as some kind of trendsetters in their generation, you know, to somehow make vegetables and fruits cool, right? Or in some way, businesses, right, to cut the labor costs, to make, you know, processed foods that are not junk foods, but actually healthy foods that don't take all day to prepare. Do you see the youth that you work with, are they interested in those topics? Do you see them, you know, spinning around ideas about how they might make businesses that can bring onto the market foods that are profitable, but also more healthy and nutritious and have a demand in the population? I'm always optimistic. So my answer will be yes. Yes, but it has to happen this way. There is this perception that young people come from university, particularly knowing everything. What I'm discovering in terms of training and mentoring and supporting youth 
is that they get schooling in a university, they get education in a place like this. So we will have to help again in educating them and creating awareness about the role of vegetables, but also more important about the role of the leaders of tomorrow. So when I have my master classes on leadership and management, I teach them as leaders, look, you will need to do things differently. You will need to come up with different policies, but we need to come together as development partners and um, as international level to make sure that we say so much and put in investment and support and political will to make the food diversification thing happen. Otherwise, you know what will uh, we remain with? Malnutrition won't go away. Child wasting will remain. Child mortality will remain probably at the same level, 20%. Obesity will become a big problem because there is always a danger. Developing countries saying, oh, my nutrition, that's your problem, Africa and Asia. Under nutrition, anemia, that's your problem. But we have another side of obesity, which is already affecting developed countries more than developing countries, and it will become much bigger if we don't sensitize and support the youth of today to go into agriculture, to go into food processing with a conscious mind that they can do things better. Thank you so much. Well, I think, Gabriel, that we're out of time. I want to say how much I've learned from you, as I always learn from you. And I lead this conversation even more excited than I was before about the role that vegetables can play, not only in creating more healthy diets, but also this incredible opportunity for new business opportunities for young people. So I'm looking forward to keeping in touch with you about this amazing program that you're leading, both the IKEA program, but also at the center and the businesses that come out of there, the stories of the businesses that come out of there and the stories of the youth who benefit from that program. So let me just take this opportunity to thank you for your your time and incredible insights. And I hope to see you in person together uh, in, in the near future. Thank you. Likewise, I'm looking forward to seeing you. Thank you. This has really been exciting. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.